How's it going? And welcome to Cartel Aristocrats cast number 61. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Gathering Magic and CoolStuffInc.com, who have provided us with gift certificates to give away on the show. With free shipping on orders of $100 or more, a 25% buy list bonus, and their ever-popular customer rewards program, Cool Stuff Inc. is the store for all of your Magic the Gathering needs. They've also hit 3 million sales, and they are doing a giveaway on all of their social media platforms, where you can win either a $400 gift box, gift card, a sealed Modern Masters 1 box, or a sweet, sweet board game. There's more information on how to win on their website. With that being said, I'm joined as always with Ed Wynn of Winning Productions, Jim Casali, head investor for the Warm Coil Engine Mutual Fund, and Travis Allen of Travis's Tacky Trousers. And I'm Zemet, of course. Uh, we have a lot to talk about this week, so let's get right into it. To start things off, we had the Star City Games Invitational, um, where Death Shadow actually lost out to Death and Taxes in the worst format of all, Modern. Uh, we also had some insane new standard decks that utilized old cards such as Metalwork Colossus and the Mythic Demon from Aether Revolt uh, that makes your opponent discard on the end step. After looking at some of these results, guys, do you think that there's room to make any money on this new standard format, even before Hour of Devastation drops with things that may be sleeper cards? And do you think that there's anything to make money off of in Modern? We saw a new card where Rise and Fall was very um, utilized in the Death Shadow Grixis decks in order to either return a creature card or hand hate the opponent out of um, out of the game. So after looking at some of these results and uh, just looking at standard in general for this tournament, are there any good standard cards you guys are looking to pick up and any modern cards you think may move because of this? Ed, do you want to sort of want to start with this? Um, nothing for me in standard. Standard is, I think, like, this is probably about as underwhelming as standard gets. I think everyone is kind of in the standards pretty stale. We're waiting for fall. We're waiting for Ixlon. Even though Hour of Devastation is coming up and we may have a new standard, I imagine there's going to be a lot of uh, recycling. We're probably going to see a lot of, like, cards that are already good. Like, Marty Vehicles will still, still probably be a deck. Gideon is still insane. Um, like Teamer Energy was kind of a new deck, but that you're basically playing like the uh, the Aetherworks Marvel deck without Aetherworks Marvel. Like you don't have the combo pieces. You basically just have like just super super efficient creatures. You're basically just trying to like use like your energy as another resource to kind of pull ahead. Um, in terms of modern, I don't think this is anything like really significant. Uh, modern is so open. Like whenever someone like it's it, Modern is designed in such a way where basically any deck can win a tournament. Like, you know, we saw, like, all different kinds of decks in the top eight. Uh, statistically, I think Death Shadow still does the best. So I wouldn't look too hard into Modern and Standard. Like, I like if you want to look into Standard, you probably want to be looking at, like, Kaladesh cards, Aether Revolt cards. Cards are probably getting kind of at the bottom. Like, you know, like, we looked at a lot of, like, mid-range. There were a lot of mid-range-based decks. Um... Anything there, like some of our specs in the past few weeks have been pretty good, like Virtus Gear Hall, Glorybringer. These are kind of cards that you can um, that you can buy on the cheap now and just kind of expect them to be good when Ixlon comes out in the fall, and that's kind of where I would be looking. I, I agree with most of those things. Um, Modern just moves so slowly financially as a format that without like reprints on the horizon, there's really not a lot to talk about there. Like... Death Shadow is going to continue to be good. It doesn't look like it's oppressive and like it doesn't look like it's super unfair and it's going to get banned. It's just 
very consistent, and uh, it beats a lot of unfair decks through hand disruption, which is also like a thing that is okay for wizards, uh, or from their standpoint anyway. Um, as far as standards concerned, I do like the results. I would say of of these uh, the invitational and the open. Where like a lot of people are playing these like mid rangey grindy decks, and uh, basically, I think the Glorybringer is going to be the best card at Pro Tour Hour of Devastation. Um, nothing in that set screams to me that there's going to be a new deck coming out of this. Like, there's nothing to like really build around. So you're just going to add cards to decks that already exist, and if there's just a green deck that plays like reasonably efficient guys. Glorybringer is just going to kill them all, and it flies. And there's not a lot of cards that like there's not a lot of creatures that fly other than um, Heart of Kirin. But you have that new red removal spell that does three damage to a creature or destroys an artifact, like the Modal Shatter spell that you could just play. And the vehicles are just not nearly as enticing as they used to be. Like being an artifact is going to be a liability, so cards like Verdurous Gear Hulk are going to probably be less good. Um, all right, that's that's just my guess anyway. Like, Glory Bringers are only like four dollars. Spending sixteen dollars on a playset of a rare that's probably going to be a four of in the format seems like a pretty easy thing to do. Like, we still have Glory Bringer for a whole another year and a half, I think. Like, it doesn't rotate during the next rotation because it's from Amon Kit, so it rotates in the next one. So it's two falls from now. Travis, how do you feel about standard and modern? Well, I love modern. It's the best format, no question. Um, I think standard, I mean, our station is coming out, but I don't think anyone's going to play standard anyways. Um, just This is a bad time of year for it, no matter what, um, especially with all the bannings having lots of sour taste in people's mouths. There's no major events. People are just kind of cooling their heels on it. Then they'll come back in October. That said, it is worth keeping an eye on because you can kind of get a feel for what some of the powerful cards might be that will come to the forefront in the fall. I think, as you guys mentioned, Glorybringer is the top card I'm kind of keeping an eye on and being aware of. Um, I'm probably waiting until like July or August. Hopefully nobody goes ham and buys out all the cheap copies before then, but I'm going to be looking to snag some later this summer. Other than that, there are some other odds and ends I would keep an eye out for um, too many to really list, but uh, your best bet is to listen to the pros. Um, look at articles they're writing and talking about and try to find common threads amongst some of their builds to see um, what the powerful cards are. And then when you're looking at some of these more off-the-wall decks, like the Metalwork Colossus one you talked about, look and see how much of that gets lost at rotation. So, for instance, the Metalwork Colossus deck actually looked really consistent through the rotation. Um, it didn't look like it lost much, but it does lose, does lose Sanctuogen, which I'm not clear on how important that card is to the deck. Um, you'd have to kind of either play some games or watch some games or, or read about it. So um, that's a good way to figure out, like, well, can this Metalwork Colossus deck still be good after rotation or Sanctum of Ugin a key card? Um, trying to, you, know, you can use that to kind of figure out whether some of those strategies are worth looking at and specking on uh, through rotation. Modern, I think, has still got plenty of opportunities. Um, it is kind of settled for the time being, but new cards every set change it up a little bit, uh, like with the latest... Dust Shadow edition, uh, what is it, Rise? No, I don't know, whatever. That new one. Um, I think there's actually a lot of ample opportunities. Today I wrote about two two cards from Eldrazi specifically that I think are worth um, going in on. So I don't think there's any shortage of opportunities in modern, you just have to know where to look. Also, Dex, Death and Taxes is a bad deck. 
I don't know why that won. I should stop winning. I'm really liking uh, Bantu the God. Uh, for those of you who have a Twitter account, uh, Paul Fudo, who's one of the buyers for NTG deals, tweeted that he thinks that this card is way underneath where it should be, and I'm starting to keep my eye out on this. Uh, this is a God that can see easily constructed play that is starting to hit $3. Uh, this seems like a good long-term pickup, worst case, and I really like um, trading for these as much as possible. So that's what I'm keeping my eye on. Anything else that you guys want to talk about from the Star City Invitational before we move on? Um, not really, no. I think it was a pretty good tournament, and I'm glad to see there's a lot of different decks that made the top eight, but... Um, I think everyone's just kind of looking ahead, wondering what this new set's going to uh, bring to the table because the pre-release is this weekend. And speaking of the new set, as Jim said, this pre-release is this weekend, and the value just does not seem to be there. There are shops canceling their pre-orders online. Uh, multiple shops are doing that. Uh, there's, It's hard to see some of these pre-orders for shops that would normally offer pre-orders in order to maybe uh, game the system and buy a card that you think is going to go up ahead of time. Um the masterpieces themselves are something we can even talk about where like what they've reprinted is extremely interesting from a financial perspective. Uh, do you guys sort of want to go down the line on how you feel about uh, the normal cards and how they're going to affect standard and if anything catches your eye and then what you think of the masterpieces from the set and anything you guys want to target? Uh, Ed, you're a good masterpieces guy. Do you want to start this off? Why does that start every topic? Jeez. Um, <clears throat> So at this point, like, the EV is, like, sure, it's always whatever. Like, rare is rarely very exciting. Like, we've kind of seen the effect of, like, the masterpieces, like, really kicking with Amiket. Like, we were talking about this in our chat earlier. Like, there's just nothing in Amiket worth anything. Like, Anointed Procession is the most expensive rare. It's more expensive than Glorybringer right now at $5. And there's three Mythics, I think, that are over $10. And that's basically the entire value of the set. Um... And I think that's just kind of virtue of what we had discussed like earlier last year when you're kind of at the point where masterpieces are no longer able to prop up the value of the set. And especially with our devastation, you just have so many underwhelming masterpieces like Thoughtseize, Blood Moon, Omniscience, Damnation. Those are like the sweet ones, as it were. And then the rest of them are basically whatever. Like most of them are just like too narrow, like not ubiquitous enough, not sweet enough. Like not big and flashy enough that you want on masterpieces to like again kind of make the set worthwhile to open. Um, in terms of what to buy, they've really been full sideboard cards like choke and pithy needle and all sorts of weird cards like that. That just who's really searching for cards like that in a masterpiece, right, Ed? Apparently, a lot of players. Right. Like, the ones, like, it, the, the masterpiece I would be targeting would be, like, the more casual ones, like, Capsize is a, uh, is kind of, like, an eternal, like, cube and EDH staple that people tend to like. That one is pretty cheap, mainly because it's not, like, a super competitive card. Um, Diabolic Edict is kind of the same way. It sees a fair amount of play in EDH as a way to get around, like, the Hexproof, like, commanders, um... And neither and, of those have been printed in Russian foil either, so maybe this is someone who maybe if they can't get these cards in Russian foils, they'll go for the masterpieces instead. Uh, Diabolic Edict does have a uh, a, uh, a promo, like a foil promo version, I believe, but this is something where a lot of players are going to want to, to get this one, and it'll splash in their decks. With yeah, that. You have to be 
so stupid to buy Russian foils. Like, who does that? It's just such a bad idea. It's a complete... I mean, there's lighting money on fire, and then there's just, like, inviting people to rob you. Yeah, it's just negative EV, if you ask me. Um, but I agree with Ed on a lot of this. These casual masterpieces are going to take a huge hit, much like attrition and some of these other ones. And, you know, all of us will be there waiting to pick them up when t when uh, some random player tries to make money opening these boxes and realizes, like everyone else, that they're just losing money. Any others that you like, Ed? Um, no Mercy is another one. Uh, Urza's Legacy, like, that was the first set that had foils, and those foils are super hard to find. No Mercy, no Mercy is kind of in that sweet spot where, like, unless you actually play Commander, unless you play Black as... Uh, when you're commander close, you probably don't know about that card, and I think like no more like the masterpiece kind of brings it to light, as it were. And I think like a little bit more exposure, like more now that like more people know about that card, it'll actually get, probably get more expensive. The old prints, um, mainly because I think like the uh, the Urza Legacy copies themselves are like what like twelve bucks or some somewhere. They're, it's already a pretty expensive card, and the foils are probably impossible to find. So now the masterpiece, if more people want to play it. It'll probably prop up the price of the old one and um, like kind of give you like a good starting point for masterpieces in our devastation that aren't super expensive just uh, to be like right off the bat. All right, so I'm going to pause here because Ed stumbled upon uh, a topic here that I've thought about before that I feel like we don't fully have an appreciation for, and it's um, how well unknown or old cards do after they've been brought to light by some sort of financial event. So in the past, it was Martin Stronghold, a card that nobody has ever heard of. And even if you've seen it, you didn't read it because there's a novel on that card. Turns out that thing is awesome in EDH. And I picked up a bunch, but it really has not budged much in like two years. And I, I really, really believe it's because most people don't know really know that it's there and they don't know what it does, even after it spiked. So when you talk about like players learning about No Mercy, I do wonder if there's like Martin Stronghold spiked in price and there was discussion of it, but maybe that information doesn't reach the type of people that I need to know about Martin Stronghold. Do you think, do we think that like the printing of No Mercy as a, um, as an invocation tells more new players about that card and that will raise its demand profile? Because there's a lot, and, and, the, and this is also topical because we have something like Season of the Witch, which just spiked too. And you look at Season of Witch and you're like, this is in like 85 decks on EDA track. Nobody plays this card. And they must have just bought it because it's on the reserve list, which is true. But that card's actually really good in EDH. Um, it's a very powerful effect, and it's something that a lot of commanders want to do. And the, and the price is pretty low, so it's like, damn, I, I read that card because it spiked. And went, oh, I should actually own one of these. And I went and bought them because I didn't know what it did. Because I'm not reading all those words. It's from the dark. There's no way it does anything relevant. So, like, what do we need to have happen to have these older cards actually become part of the larger consciousness to drive up their demand profile? What are we looking for? I think reprints are definitely the biggest thing. Like, Nurmergy is a card that I own and I own a foil of because I was looking for specifically for cards that like punish people for attacking me. Wait, which card? No Mercy. No, oh, you did say No Mercy. Yeah, yeah, I have I have a foil copy of the Urza's Legacy No Mercy because I was specifically looking for cards to stop people from attacking me. Like it it doesn't it doesn't prevent people from attacking you, but it does something similar to Ghost Quarter where it disincentivizes players to attack you. But or sorry, Ghostly, Ghostly Prison. Prison. Yeah. yeah, sorry, I meant Ghostly Prison. Um, but a lot of players don't like if you're going to go search cards on uh, 
for your EDH deck, you're not gonna like you're not gonna find no mercy. Like that's just not a card that that has any synergy with what's already going on. So I I believe that this is the kind of card that people are like, oh, if I knew that it existed, I would play it. But I didn't. But I didn't know what to search for, and I didn't know what I was looking for before I saw it. You know, it's like you don't go looking for for no mercy really because it's not a card that like does anything flashy that you can build your deck around. But it's just a card that like is good in a lot of decks because it does a thing that you want it to do, which is dis disincentivize people to attack you. Um, so I think that it, it being reprinted as an invocation, people will be like, what does that card do? And then read it and be like, oh man, that's awesome. And then play it. And maybe, you know, the demand for the other copies goes up. But at this point, like, there's really not a whole lot that you can do to get the word out there, so to speak, like with Martin Stromgald or whatever, like unless someone has like a, a two card combo with that guy and another card and like posts it on Twitter and it goes viral and fucking everyone knows about it. It's just never going to become common knowledge and it's going to be hard to find that kind of card. Well, that kind that comment is interesting then because that means that we can look at non reserved list cards as having the possibility of suddenly flooding into public consciousness via reprint, but reserved list cards are actually going to have a much harder time of it. I suppose that's possible. It doesn't seem completely unreasonable. Yeah, and the other thing is a lot of people are just doing MTG Finance to maybe uh, make playing the game a little cheaper. That's a majority of our audience, and a lot of people don't have time to just uh, armchair speculate on cards and throw them in a box and wait uh, for those returns. And this actually leads into our next question, where a viewer asked uh, how to know when you cut your losses and run. Uh, he said he invested about $10,000 in reserveless cards, uh, hoping to get a uh, 30% return over two years. And right now he's at a 17% return. And he wants to know, uh, because he didn't hit his goal and because buy listing and all this other stuff is going to take margins, obviously. Uh, so 10% of 10,000 and you're at 17%, you know, you got like 11,700 bucks after you sell these cards, fees are going to eat you alive. So how do you guys know when to uh, cut your losses and run? Or do you guys just stubbornly hold on to cards like Travis? Jim? I mean, it depends on how much the card costs you to start out with. I don't typically buy cards that are particularly expensive to begin with. So my losses, even if I don't get what I want out of them, are going to be very minimal. Generally, like you don't, unless you need the money for something else, there's really nothing to lose by holding them for longer. Like, if something's at its bottom and it hasn't gone up enough, then like holding them theoretically, unless there's like a, an event that would happen that would make them worth less than they are today. Like, if you had Etherworks Marvels and you were hoping that they were going to go up in price and then they got banned, just buy list them and just don't worry about it anymore because they're not going to be more expensive than they are when you when you buy list them and it's just only gonna get worse from there. So you know there's a couple of cards that I have that I would call like failures, but like I bought them for like basically nothing. So I really didn't have a lot invested and I didn't have a lot of incentive to sell. So like something that I did recently um was I bought I bought fifty six copies of Dark Salvation during the Eldritch Moon spoiler season because someone on TCG player had um, 
they had they 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 messed up when they were listing them. They listed they were supposed to list they were trying to list them for like a dollar ten or something like that, but they listed them for like thirteen cents and ninety nine cents shipping. So I bought fifty something copies for thirteen cents, and I was like, "That's basically a bulk rare. This card could be worth anything. That's not bulk." And I bought them all, and then I sat on them for like the entirety of the lifetime of the card, basically until the last pro tour where people were like, Oh, let's play them. And then I sold all my copies. Like I was willing to go down with that ship because I played 14 cents on cards that I could sell for 10 cents. And there's really not any reason to like get rid of them before then. So it really depends on what you spent and what you're going to use your money for. Like if you're just going to put it in the bank or if you need it for like something else, like then sell your cards. I don't know. It really depends on how much you're willing to wait. If you're if you're playing the waiting game on like reserve list stuff, you have to do it forever. So, I don't know what they were expecting to have happen. Ed, you've been flashing your masterpieces for the last couple of minutes. I guess is a way to um, compensate. Do you want to sort of want to talk about uh, what's going on with masterpieces and or whenever you've taken a loss on stuff? Wait, which one was he flashing? I couldn't tell. Pithing Needles and Solemns, I believe. Oh, it's Pithing Needles? Yeah. Um, so I guess to kind of elaborate on uh, the original question, I think like a 30% return over two years is just completely unrealistic. Um, Magic doesn't really have that kind of growth anymore. Um, a lot of the surefire bets, like modern um, reserveless cards, I think a lot of those have kind of sailed. Uh, the market is a little bit too efficient. There's just a little... There's just a few too many players in the market to really be making large margins, unless you do something that's like super specialized, like misprints or high-end graded cards, or old seal product or whatever. Um, if you're looking at ten thousand dollars as an investment that you made a few years ago and you're expecting thirty percent returns, um, this is probably not the place for you. Um, you will pr- like seventeen percent. Great, you you made you know like seventeen hundred dollars or whatever. Um, but realistically, there's probably safer and easier ways that are less that are less painful to make that over two years if you just want to put your money in the stock market, mutual fund. Uh, there, there's just any sort of things you can do I, that, that doesn't include magic. I mean, a stock market mutual fund is not going to give you 17 over two years, is it? Yeah. No, no, yeah, it no, no, no. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. It, it depends. It depends. I mean, it, if you if you take one of the biggest traded mutual funds out there and you look at American mutual funds class A right now, which is AGTHX for our listeners, uh, I think it's gone up 30% over the last two years. I mean, all right, so I, I don't doubt that it happens. You can also get lucky on sp- um, stocks and make a fortune, but like, yeah. is that an average return for mutual funds over the last two decades type of thing? Like, I just No, I think mutual funds wild. are 7% per year for the more normal aggregated ones, but I'm also not a stockbroker, but that's just based on research in the industry. Sure. I mean, this, this is always in Magic's problem is that you can have ridiculous returns, but it doesn't scale well. And 10 grand, 10 grand is, is still, I think, low enough on the scale that you can get decent returns. I would consider 30% over two years actually not that impressive, um, or I should say not that hard, not that hard to achieve, uh, but you're not going to do it on sealed product. It's going to take legwork. Um, if I had 10 grand to, to, like, if I just had 10 grand capital available right this second, I would throw out masterpieces. I think, I mean, you could get 30% in four months with that. But that doesn't really answer your question. To answer your question, like when to cut your losses, 
Well, if you've actually made a profit, then you haven't made it. You're not cutting your losses, right? Like you're just taking a smaller gain than you wanted to. I would probably jump to sealed product. And if you get out of cost, basically be happy with it. I think sealed product in general is not great. Um, and you have to have stuff that's really old. Uh, it's really hard to move when you do want to get rid of it. And the market, I just, I don't love it. Um, especially if you're investing in magic, there's just other places to go with your money, like masterpieces. If you're talking about actually cutting your losses, I don't know. I've got some commander's arsenals in the closet that are, I'm underwater by probably like at least $50 a copy. It could be more. And that is miserable. And I still haven't sold them. And I probably should, but it's hard to because once I sell them, I have to admit that I lost money on them. So I guess I'm probably not the best person to answer your question since I won't do it. <laughs> I've taken L's on a lot of stuff before uh, because I just buy like everything. Um, but on non on non foil stuff where we pay too aggressively and then the price goes down on like tireless tracker or Ulamog or stuff like that, you just have to sort of swallow it up and move on. There's like nothing to do. You move that card at whatever you can move it at and you move on with life. Um, it shouldn't necessarily be a game of how long can I hold this for which percentage? It should just be how many cards can I flip at X percentage? And that's more what you want to look at. So, yeah, go ahead, Travis. Yeah, I mean, so that's a good idea. Is that when you talk about cutting your losses, you have to consider about what you're talking about. If you've got a stack of rares that you spec on in standard um, and they just went nowhere, uh, you know, just if you can sell them back at Vilas at like half or three quarters of what you paid, maybe you just do that and take your lumps. Um, if you bought them at 25 or 40 cents and didn't go anywhere, shove them in your bulk rare box and just hope you get lucky down the road. If it's sealed product, the sealed product is tricky because you, the reprints will probably break the value of the box faster than it can gain price at this point in time. Um, that wasn't true before. I think that that's true now is that essentially the reprints are going to overrun the, the value of the box before it gains enough. So either your box is ancient and reprints don't matter or it's not and you probably should not be sitting on those for that long. Um, because eventually, essentially, in order for the sealed product to beat out the, the reprint loss, you the sealed box has to accumulate value essentially as a collector's item, as a sealed item. Like the fact that it is sealed and not a collection of cards has to be worth something. And sets like Cons of Tarkir and even Zendikar probably, well, well, first run Zendikar, but like even like World Wake, Rise of the Eldrazi, stuff like that, like probably doesn't really have much of that like sealed product value that's greater than the cards. Um, you have to go really far back for that. So those commander's arsenals in my closet, I'm just kind of hoping that it being this object is going to be worth more than the value of the cards. I don't know if we're going to get there, but you're talking like five and 10 years at least for that type of stuff. I mean, especially when it comes to older booster boxes, when the Zendikar fetches got reprinted and I had a box of original Zendikar, I knew that it would basically be impossible to move the box because the market was so small. So I just grabbed a bunch of friends, got some scotch and we drafted it. And like, I opened like $200 worth of cards when the boxes were selling for like 600 at the time, but that experience was worth taking that loss. In my opinion was just, eh, I bought it for this much. Let's just draft it and have fun. So that's like the worst case scenario with sealed product is if you can't find someone to move it, just draft it with your friends and who cares? And, well, unless you're a in, box, but if it's 10 grand worth. Yeah. But this guy was on reserve list cards, not sealed boxes. Those are a little more fluid to move. All right. Man, I just looked at the cards that are in Commander's Arsenal, and like 
literally every reprint set is just like Wizards of the Coast bending Travis over a table. Like just everything, everything has gotten reprinted recently is just from that from that box set. It's just it's just amazing. There are collectors who like to display like one of every supplemental product out there, but that, the problem is finding those guys. I mean, like, the, the funny thing is that like there's some of these just became masterpieces too. So like the ones in this box are basically worthless. Yeah, there was like a point in time like like Sylvan Library was probably like one of like the more expensive cards in that set, and obviously like the EM the EMA reprint like with the exact same art, and you're able to get the following process pretty much just cause that to tank. Uh, Kalio was one of the more novel ones because you could get that as a foil commander, and now like commanders uh, anthology, yeah, you can get that as well. The dice used to be cool because that was the only way to get dice, and now there's four of them per commander anthology set. Like it, it, it's just it's just so hard to keep it long term. Like it's a steel product. There so, was also the um, the first printing of loyal retainers after P3K, which at the time was a pretty big deal, but now it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's just gotten savaged. So if I were you, Travis, I would take a long, hard, uh, revised look at your portfolio on what you're holding. And speaking of revised, we actually have a credit giveaway for someone asking about revised cards for this week. If uh, you want to bring that up, Jim. Sure. So our winner this week is Maddie Exile. I don't know if that's his real name, but yeah, I said it and I didn't mutilate it. So uh, that's awesome. Uh, Maddie, uh, can you send me a message on Twitter at the Cartel Aristocrats Twitter account or on Facebook, and I will hook you up with a sweet store credit. But um, Jeremy, do you want to read the questions? So I, uh, yeah. The- so you, you wait, wait. wrote like two. I want, I want to be able to get in on these store credit giveaways because at this point, our listeners are making more per cast than we are. We're getting zero, and these guys are getting store credit. My equity is less for than the listener. We're doing it for the people, Travis. It's just money. Who cares? All right. So, Maddie, you basically wrote in a giant essay of questions. We're going to pick the best one out of here because uh, one of these questions, you really knocked it out of the park. Uh, you say, after having purchased some revised duels recently, I am curious as to what test you guys currently use to ensure it is genuine. I guess I may just be really bad at this, but I was really nervous they were not real upon touching them. I did the typical test, but I am not sure if I actually know what I'm looking for, which is hard to say given that I've had the duels in possession ever since I first entered the game back in 94. Uh, Still kicking myself that I bought Fallen Empires, Homelands, and Chronicles instead of the quote-unquote real stuff. Uh, What are things you guys look for in in order to determine if something is real or fake? And Ed, as someone who is grinding away at every Grand Prix, how are you able to tell what fakes are? Because um, you're you're spending a ton of money on these cards. He can tell which ones are fakes because they're in his uh, case for ten dollars less than the real ones. And like before, Ed answers like we're both Ed, myself, and the rest of us are at the point where we can sort of feel what's real and like see it right away. But for the untrained eye, like uh, Maddie here, how would you recommend that he that he works on identifying fakes? It's hard because I think like I'm kind of at the point where you can just kind of feel what fake looks like. Um, it's just a simple matter. Like uh, for anyone listening, I have like I just have a random magic card in front of me. This is a mythology's brushland. Um, you can just kind of feel it. Like just the texture needs to have not. It needs to not be super glossy. Uh, most duels back then they were printed. There were like very few printer printing processes back then. They were much more uniform relatively speaking because they had like the same stock um whatever so you can kind of feel it it needs to like a lot of the newer printing processes especially ones overseas in uh belgium and japan they have a much glossier feel 
so it needs to be, not be super slick. You can kind of, if you just like, there's like a certain snap to it. You can, it, it needs to not be too rigid or too flimsy. If it just kind of bends easily, um, it's probably not real. Um, I probably wouldn't recommend going too hard on your duels, but like you can, anyone watching like the video, this easily snaps back into place. Um, other than that, like if you're really worried and you're looking to buy, buy from reputable dealers. Um, random guy with like 25 feedback on eBay, probably not the best place to like buy your duels. Most reputable dealers like do take the time to kind of go through duels, make sure that they're not selling fakes. And if they if they do incidentally sell you a fake, you have some recourse. You can say like, you know, I bought this here, and most of them are willing to uh, write as a loss in their business, and then just like take it back and refund you your money. Um, I, I carry loop with me whenever I'm looking for these things, especially like overseas. Um, you just want to make sure like you want to be looking for like the rosette patterns. You want to be looking for a certain dot pattern. Um, and that's just kind of the thing that you do once you look at enough duels. So I don't really have a good answer as to how to identify um, fakes, mainly because there's like, you know, the, the things that people think about, like the bend test only takes you so far because it doesn't, um, because like the ones that fail are like rebacks, um, the the light tests. Unless you actually know what you're looking for, it's kind of hard to do. Um, let me see if I can grab my phone here. Uh, like it doesn't really show up super well, but you you can kind of see through the card, but not all the way. So if you look at the back, it doesn't it doesn't show up well enough. But you can you can see through it. You should be able to see the patterns on the back of the card. But it needs to be not completely transparent. Indication that there's too much glue if it's a reback. Um, other than that, like it, it's hard because, like you know, you can you can look at loop and try to see the blue line, but there's now fakes that have that have the blue in them. So there's just no like single hard fast rule to identify fakes. You just have to kind of be able to feel it and. If, if you really do have a question, just take, like, a real underground C and compare it to an underground C you're trying to buy. Um, and usually they should be relatively close. You can – and if there's any noticeable difference that doesn't indicate that's a fake, you should be able to kind of feel it out just via touch right away. I think you're missing an important part of this process, Ed, uh, especially for people who already own dual lands. The worst thing in the world that you could possibly do, just take it to your local shop or event and ask people if it's real or not. Like, it's always good to get a second opinion on your duels. You can walk into any shop that knows what they're doing and say, hey, I bought this. Is this real? I want to make sure it's real. I already give you business. Just want to make sure I'm not playing with fakes at the shop. And they'll look at it and, you know, they'll say yes or no. And if they don't know, then you probably shouldn't be buying high-end cards from them because there are shop owners out there that, like, can't tell. Um, but, like, if you were to bring it into my shop, I'd just be like, yeah, I printed that yesterday and put it on eBay. It's totally real. So you know, the worst thing you can do is just like go up to more experienced players or shop owners and just say, hey, uh, is this real or not? And most of the time, they'll just help you out. I would say I think as, um, as somebody sitting at home who wants to be able to figure this stuff out, I would guess that your best bet is um, a loop, um, a decent loop with a light on it. There was just a post going around on Twitter showing about Five bucks on Amazon. Yeah, and right, and for a couple bucks more, you can get a really uh, higher quality one that'll make your life easier. Um, that's pro I would guess your best bet, um, especially because fakes are getting better and better um, for the most part. So I think that for the time being, that's probably uh, still the best way to go. There's um, 
there you have to keep in mind keep out keep in mind too that some cards are real and still look like fakes the uh event deck burden catacombs is chief among them in my experience that card looks and feels extremely fake but it is actually real same with the goblin guides from the exact same event yeah. decks yeah that is something that's really annoying to explain to customers i actually generally keep those for my personal playset and put the ones that i have in my decks back on the shelf because to my casual customers they have no idea like oh this is an event deck printing so it's yeah so so to clarify for some people that don't know um supplementer well like whole decks that are printed uh, generally use a different printing process which makes the cards a little bit glossier and they feel fake despite being real um, sometimes you can see this on older, um, like intro pack foils. Also the intro pack foil from the intro pack, despite not having different art will be a darker color. Like the, the, all the colors will be much darker on the intro pack one and the pack foil will be much brighter. Um, I know that the, this is, this is, uh, the case in like dragon's maze. I'm pretty sure. Cause I found a bunch of Rurikthars cause Rurikthar is a, is an intro pack foil and there's like some dark ones and some light ones and they're both real, but the dark ones are from the intro pack. So um, be careful, like uh, automatically assuming that a card is fake because it's more slick because uh, foreign cards are more glossy and more plasticky and uh, like prepackaged uh, products like, like event decks and commander products and stuff like that will also feel more fake despite not being it. Yeah, that's a really good one. The Rurik Thar is another one that I know has been really grueling for a lot of players in order to determine whether or not it's real or not. Um, but let's move on. I, we have a lot of people saying on the live stream that this has been extremely educational. If you guys have any questions about this stuff, uh, feel free to reach out to us on any of our Twitters or at cartel underscore finance on either Facebook or Twitter. Um, how can people win a $25 gift certificate to Cool Stuff Inc. for this week since we just gave Maddie a $25 gift certificate? Uh, for his last week's question. So it sounds like the easiest way to continue doing this is to have the questions be posted on Gathering Magic because then I can quickly look them up uh, right before the cast starts. So this week when Gathering Magic puts up our cast, which should be uh, Wednesday, July 5th. They're probably off tomorrow. Yeah, they're 100% off tomorrow. Everybody is. so in two days and Wednesday, uh, if you're not listening to the or if you are listening to this live, Gathering Magic will post our cast, and then you can post your question there. And if you get picked and answered, you will be uh, able to win a $25 gift certificate. And continuing this train of investments, let's get into our next question because we actually got about 80 questions for this week. We don't have time to answer them all, but we're gonna we're gonna see what we can do to help you guys out here, especially with the fakes. For a lot of listeners who may not know how to determine what cards are fakes. Um, oh wait, hold on. I want to just like interrupt you real quick. I'm sorry. I so see tra- tra- Travis, Travis, and, and Ed both said a loop, which, if you're not aware, is also known as well. The full name, I guess, is a jeweler's loop, and it's just, spelled L O U P E, not yeah. L O O P. Yeah, it's it's not a circle um, that you're like using to look at the card. It's a magnifying glass and a light, usually, basically. So that's if that's what you're looking for, um, that's what. Its full name is. I feel like this question we can knock out of the park real quick. Someone says, Hey, I've been watching Alpha Investments videos on sealed product and I'm interested in some of the gains he's gotten talking about in his videos. Um, I've, I've read slash watch Rudy's videos and I want to know how to invest in sealed product. What do you guys recommend investing in? 
my answer before Ed says anything is don't. Like he's just, he's selling you boxes on his own eBay site. Just uh, just stay away from sealed product unless you can get it at like uh, at like distributor pricing, or if you find it in a collection and it comes with buying cards, just stay the hell away. Ed. Um, despite how I personally feel about Rudy, which I'm going to keep out of this, um, I think sealed, sealed product is just not the way to go. It takes up too much space. Um, and realistically, how much you expect to make, like, I'll be, I'll be perfectly transparent here. Like a lot of like retailers don't like to talk about this, but the cost on magic box is between 77 and $79, depending on which distributor you, you get it from. And it's going up. Woo. And it's going up. Yep. Uh, so it's between $77 and $79. Uh, again, it depends on your distributor, quantity you buy, whether you get direct from Wizards, etc. There's a lot of things. Once you have to pay for shipping on top of it, you're looking at about $80, like anywhere from like $2.11 to like $2.15 a pack. That's roughly your cost. So assuming, you, let's say you are somehow able to get boxed at $80, if you're able to sell them in store, Great, like you can sell for $95, $100. I don't know how many people out there are willing to pay $100 uh, in store for boxes, um, mainly because the the chief argument you hear is, oh, I can buy online for this price. And if you go online, you look, you can buy boxes as little as like $86 shipped to your door, which to me is ridiculous because um, whenever we ship boxes, we ship them in priority flat rates. And it costs $5.95 to ship inside that flat rate envelope. So at $86, if you subtract $5.95, you're basically selling at $0.05 more than what you bought it for. And that's before any sort of fees that you need to pay to list it on any sort of marketplace like eBay, Amazon, Crystal Commerce, DGD Player. And you're paying, depending on where you go, you pay anywhere from 12% to like 25, like 22 to 25% on top of that. Like, so at the end of the day, like your $80 is now becoming like $60, $65, $70. Like you're losing $10 per box at this point if you sold it at $86 or before whatever. Labor. Before labor even gets involved. Before labor, assuming like, you know, you have to pay someone to pull the box, ship the box, print the label and walk it out. Right. And then not to mention like however much space this takes up. Um, so I moved to my new apartment and I don't have that much steel product left anymore, but that top shelf there. It's basically just Ram Steel product. I have like a bunch of Pokemon box sets. I have like some dual decks back there. I have some Final Fantasy stuff that's been sitting there. Like that's like, takes up room. And like no matter the card game, like now that Pokemon has kind of entered the phase of oh, we're just gonna start reprinting our sets as well. It just becomes like it, like holding Steel product for a super long term is just super risky. It takes up too much room. It's not cost efficient. There's honestly just no money to be made. So I would just strongly recommend against Steel product as a whole as well. Jim, how do you feel about sealed product as a uh, more casual player now? I mean, I buy only the stuff that I'm going to open and I'm going to use. So at this point, it pretty much is exclusively pre-constructed decks. Like, I buy commander sets, and I'll buy packs if I'm going to draft them, and then that's pretty much it. Um, Previous to, like, the, the last, like, really... In, like like lucrative, I'll say, but that's not really a, a good term for it. The last like set that was worth buying and holding on to was Innistrad, like the original Innistrad, which is like five years ago at this point. And people really like that set for the cards in it, but also because it was a really fun draft environment. With the fact that we're getting a master set once or twice a year now, it doesn't matter how good a a standard draft set is anymore, and 
you're just it's just not worth buying them. Like you can you can draft Innistrad or you can dra- or or Amonkhet. Amonkhet's a, a set that people enjoy drafting a lot. It's pretty fun. But you could do that, or you could draft like if you want a sweet draft format, you can cube, or you could do Modern Masters 2017, or you could do Iconic Masters. And there's really there's really no like allure to having these sealed boxes because nobody wants to buy them. Like most most casual players now, even now, know that busting boxes is just a waste of time and money. You just open more stuff that you don't want than what you do want. You're better off spending the $100 on singles than you are on a box because the singles are always going to be the things that you want and the box may or may, or may not be the things that you want. So I don't know. I don't like sealed product. It's big. It's heavy. It's annoying to ship to people. Like Then you have to find someone that actually wants it, which may not ever exist. So it's to me, it's just like foreign cards. I don't want to buy them. It's too hard to get rid of them. It's not worth my time or my money. Travis, how do you feel about stuff like Amonkhet? Are players cycling through it locally as far as the packs go, or are you staying away as well? Don't buy sealed product and don't listen to Rudy. Yeah, like personally, I thought Rudy was just sort of trying to sell his extra product using his videos because he always, whatever video he makes of you should buy this box, he has it for sale on his eBay website as far as I'm aware. And then I saw him in real life at Vegas, and now I'm even more convinced to do the exact opposite of whatever he recommends. So that would be my plan. Stay away from sealed product. Like there were people trying to sell the cast members at Westgate Modern Masters one for $350 a box. And I bought one box and I still lost like 50 bucks, even with the foil blood moon and uh, summoners packed. But the mythics were garbage, but like still stay away. I mean, it's just like with how many reprint sets we get every year now, there's no possibility that this sealed product will ever become worth anything. Good point. Well, I think we covered that pretty well. We got one more question to get into here. Uh, someone wants to know, what's the best way to start building a collection on a light bl- budget to eventually snowball into a storefront? And let me just stop you right there, buddy. Stay the hell away from trying to open a storefront. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Like, seems like easy money. There's very, 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 very few people that will ever succeed, and even then they're not making any real money. Unless you're Bach. But, like, I don't. Just don't. Use it to pay your hobby bills, and that's all you should be using it for. Um, now, if you're interested in doing what Doug and other people do, which is where you run the, the counter for other people, uh, that can be lucrative. But I would not try to open your own shop by grinding binders. It's not the time for that anymore. People have smartphones now. And I, in my opinion, there's too many uh, trade sharks at all the Grand Prix. I see the same like dozen to 20 people at every Grand Prix uh, trying to trade up on the floor. And I think that ecosystem is already full. Ed, as someone who's at Grand Prix a lot in big tournaments, how do you feel about this? I mean, just it's just on all levels, right? Like, I think the, the point of trying to be profitable as a hobby store is just, like, it, it, it's basically gone, right? Like, I think, honestly, like, the the model of a hobby store is just, like, it's basically like antiquated at this point. Like there's just like, why, why are people still going down to hobby stores and playing? Right. Like growing up, I don't know how it was for you guys, but like Friday night, I would spend like my afternoon at F and M, uh, hanging out with people, trading, doing whatever. And now it just seems like, you know, people should basically show up right at their magic tournament. They play and then they leave. Um, and that's just kind of, that's just kind of the nature. Um, like not to go on a rant, but I think like you, it, it, it 
running and opening up a hobby store is just a sucker's bet at this point. Unless you're already into it, unless you have a huge, uh, unless you have like a huge amount of capital or inventory already, you're not. Go- it's not worth your time to try and like grind up trades all the way up to a storefront. Like that. That's just realistically not going to happen. If you again, if you do like what Doug does, and you can basically just have a small amount of singles, you can basically stock a store that's fine but if you once you start looking at things like once you have to start paying like labor overhead um it's like the amount of capital you need to invest is just it's, it's just gonna be infinite like when you have to start selling cards to oh i need to buy like a ton of tables or i need to buy new showcases um but the, the group is making fun of me i'm i'm gonna keep it short don't do it it's not worth your time invest in learning anything else if you want to have an affordable hobby great like knock yourself out. Don't put in too much time. Otherwise, you can literally do anything else for a better return. There's three things that binder grinders never have when they're trying to grind from a binder to a shop. The first one is a business plan because if you had a business plan, you would understand exactly how stupid this sounds. The second is deodorant because none of you shower, and the third one is any type of social life because you're spending your weekends trading at Grand Prix. Jim, I mean, I, I understand the allure and like. It sounds like a cool thing to do. Oh, I could open a store and sell magic cards, but like, don't don't do that. It's it's not worth it. Whatever you think it is, it's not that. Just it's probably the opposite of that. So just get a job doing something else. Work at a store if you want, but like, don't own one. It's the worst. I will kind of mirror it. Like, I'm not saying that's impossible to open up a successful store. Like, there are definitely, like, some very, like, savvy people out there that can get it going. But make sure you have a backup plan. Like, if it's not your full-time job, then, like, make sure you have something to fall back on. Like, there's no way you can make a hobby store profitable enough to keep yourself going. Plot twist. Ed's making a killing right now, and he doesn't want more people encroaching on his space. Wake up, sheeple. I'm messing. Travis? That's, like, like part of the issue, right? Like, everyone that has this idea is cutting into the the you know a ever smaller piece of the pie well especially because the population isn't as big as it was in 2013 when it was growing like crazy so there's just not as much room travis a couple years ago we had a guy who uh, wanted to open a store here in buffalo and he messaged me and asked for advice on how to do it Uh, and i said don't do it and i said i understand that it's your dream and it's your passion and you really want to do it and i respect that but first of all, there are like nine stores in our local area alone. So like that is a terrible place to do it in the first place. And also it's, you really have to love the game and you can't expect to have this turn into like a highly successful venture. There are like eight people in the world who have turned their storefronts into like a corporation. Uh, most guys are just barely scraping by. And I know several people in the area for whom that definition applies. Anyways, this guy, one advice, I said, first of all, I don't think you should do it. But second of all, if you absolutely have to do it, do not do it here. Uh, he said, thanks for the input. I'm going to do it anyway. I said, good luck. I wish you all the best. And I meant it. He closed within 30 days, like open to close that fast. Really do not recommend going down that path. But in any case, if your goal is to open a local, open a store, keep in mind that a storefront is going to want and Jeremy and Ed can clarify, but I'm pretty confident you want a high volume of standard cards because that's good. It's standard and some EDH because that's going to have the most turnover. That also means that like you can't really grow. It's hard to grind your binder into those cards because like by the time you've ground into the standard cards, like they rotated. So 
I guess maybe grind into like mid value stuff that then like over the course of a month you could try and turn into standard stuff. I think your better bet is just to get a small business loan and then just open the damn thing uh, with that money. But not advocating for that. I just think that that sounds like if you had to do it, that's probably your best bet. You'd need six figures to open up a real shop anyway, which is tough to get for most people who want to open a game shop. They don't even have that many resources to back them up. And if they did, then they shouldn't be asking us how to open a shop. Um, you guys ready for pick of the week? It's no. time for the pick of the week. Oh man, I missed that. What you got this week, bud? Uh, I am all in. On Excuse Glory me, sir. Burger. I believe your name is not Ed. I thought you said Bud. Sorry. I but I'm going anywhere. I'm going anyway, so nobody can steal it. I'm picking Glory Bringer. I think that card should be very good. I think that the standard decks that we see at the next Star City Open are going to have an extraordinarily large number of glory bringers and uh, get them now. It's a great pick, but it's too early. I don't know if that's true. With ads. Is it, is it me? No. Uh did I steal Glory Bringer from you? Yeah, no. it's getting his I stole <laughs> I stole all the glory. Um I'm gonna go with masterpieces in general. Like, um anyone who's been following masterpieces are just becoming super, super low in supply. Um I I have the ones I need for myself. Um but like if, if you if you're looking at it where you want to get one for your casual deck, like Lightning Greaves, for example, right? Like that boat has sailed. Um, if you want like Chalice of Void for your like to pip out your like Legacy Eldrazi deck, like that boat has sailed. Right? Like it's just a matter of like what's next. Like if you want lowest pedals for storm, like that might be my pick of the week because you're that that boat probably isn't far away from sailing either. It's becoming pretty hard to get these. Um like, you don't ever see these on buy lists at GPs. Most people don't come up to me and say, hey, what's your buy price on this masterpiece? It just doesn't happen. They basically disappear. They go into people's collections. They go into cubes, EDH, EDH decks, whatever, like, pimp prize possession they have, and then it just, it's just gone. So, like, once retailers are selling out of them, they're basically gone. And if you, re if you really question this, go to the next Grand Prix and just go through dealer's cases and just tell me, like, how many masterpieces, like, how many expeditions, how many inventions you see in their cases and the realistic the answer is going to be not that many because they just don't have them they have no way to get them back once they've already sold well masterpieces are fantastic uh you really can't miss with them i've been trying not to do nothing but recommend masterpieces because that can be a little boring for some of our listeners uh this week i'm gonna go with i think foil drowsy temple you can find these at like 15-ish right now. Um, the deck was all over the Star City Open. It's been really well positioned lately. The last time it was printed was Modern Masters 2015, so over two years ago now. Unlikely to return to that tribe and those cards anytime in the near future. Um, and given how that the card is a mono four of in all of the Eldrazi decks, plus like not only in modern, but also in other formats, Legacy, Casual, shows up in Cube. Um, you also see it played in other like not Thought not see a reality smasher style decks. You'll see in some of the death and taxes decks. Like it's in a lot of places. Um, and thought not see and reality smasher both actually just jumped on their foil prices. But Eldrazi Temple's played more and hasn't moved yet. So I think those are pretty safe. 
I agree with Ed. Masterpieces are moving like crazy. It might needle you. That pithy needle jumped up recently, and you might feel a little grieved that Lightning Greaves is gone from the internet. But those seem like solid picks overall. Um, I'm going to go with a Selesnia Planeswalker that is under $3 at the moment. A Johnny Unyielding is the one that I think this card is just free money. This was $2.10 on TCG Player until I bought those copies uh, with their 5% kickback. Uh, no standard Planeswalker should be $2. This is easily a $5 card long-term. It's got a Swords to Plasher stapled onto it, and it works pretty well with the tracks and other counter decks. So, I mean, if you can get these for a dollar, you're not going to lose any money. If you can get these at $2 and a little bit of change, uh, this is still free money. I think this card will go up slowly, just like Sarkin, the Dragon Speaker. So, buckle your... Uh, you're clicking fingers in to pick up a couple of these and you you can thank me for some free money down the road. This doesn't even have to break in standard. It's just a, a good card to make you some money down the road. So I really like this card. My backup is Bantu. I agree with some of the dealers talking about this card. Uh, this is really cheap and it can break out in the next year and a half. So why not? Trade into those, spend cash on a Johnny, you'll be fine. And maybe then you can afford to buy some foil Russian cards like me. Because uh, I need more of those for my cube, please. If anyone has, please reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, but my first advice to our listeners is not to buy a foil Russian card. All I'm saying is if you only want to spend $5,500 on a set of foil Russian thought seasons from Lorwyn, it's a steal right now. Because I saw those on the high-end page. And yeah, it's the MTG Finance tip of the day. Where can people find you guys? You know, this is a pretty informative episode. If people want to pick your brains a little more when we're not uh, when we're not on the cast, where can people find where you guys are? Uh, at Edwin13 on Twitter. Uh, I'm with Cronin's Game Store. Uh, I will be on vacation in uh, Kyoto in a few weeks if people want to see me there, followed by a long month of Minneapolis, Birmingham, Denver, Gen Con, and Indy. Holy shit, I'll see you at three of those. Woohoo! Yay. Jim? Don't sound too excited. Uh, my name is Jim Kasai. You can find me on Twitter at PHROST underscore. Uh, you can occasionally find me at events, but I'm not really coming to one any anytime soon. So uh, if you're in Orlando, you can shoot me a message and maybe I can hang out or something. Inviting people to hang out with you. Travis? I said maybe. I didn't say I was. I was no promising. That's questionable judgment. Uh, <clears throat> I'm Travis Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N on Twitter. I write every Monday at MTG Price. I also do the MTG Fast Finance podcast with James, usually released on Thursdays. And if you like playing magic, check out scry.land. Find magic in your area. And I'm Zemet. You can find me in the great state of Missouri off of Highway Farty Far and Farty. Um, Find me on Twitter at Zemet Sells Magic. You can find our YouTube page if you want to watch this video at Lengthy Zemet on YouTube. We really do appreciate everyone that's tuning in. We are seeing a very good growth in numbers lately, so we appreciate everyone that's been sharing our podcast or interacting with us on Facebook, Twitter, or any other medium. Uh, good luck at your pre-releases this weekend, guys. I hope you guys pull some pre-release pack invocations because I thought these types of packs were garbage, but maybe you'll get lucky. And of course, we appreciate you guys listening and we'll see you all next week. Have a good one. Bye.